Imagine a national park bigger than Yosemite, bigger than Yellowstone, bigger than the Grand Canyon. Imagine a national park bigger than all three of those combined. And not only that, but bigger than all three of those combined with the addition of the Adirondacks, Denali, which is huge, the Grand Tetons, the Great Smoky Mountains, Olympic and Sequoia. Imagine a national park bigger than all of those combined. And imagine that it depends on you to become a reality. And it doesn't depend on you in some burdensome, terrible way. You don't have to do anything big, but rather it depends on something that you can do at your own scale. Something enjoyable, rewarding, and done in the key of wonder, something that can open up the ecology of your mind. That's what this episode is about. So if you're ready for some dangerous wisdom, they can help you become a little emissary of dangerous wisdom in the world, you're in the right place. Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. And culture is a big theme in the deepest sense. We're going to talk about how to recultivate America. And I have a very special guest, Doug Tallamy, who is the T.A. Baker Professor of Agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he has authored 112 research publications and has taught insect-related courses for 42 years. Chief among his research goals is to better understand the many ways insects interact with plants and how such interactions determine the diversity of animal communities. His books include Bringing Nature Home, The Living Landscape, co-offered with Rick Dark, Nature's Best Hope, a New York Times bestseller, The Nature of Oaks, winner of the American Horticultural Society's 2022 Book Award. And those last two, I have copies of both. They're beautiful. Highly recommend anything by Doug. And those two are excellent ones to start with. In 2021, he co-founded Homegrown National Park, which we're going to be talking about today. He co-founded that with Michelle Alfandari. And you can find out more about that at homegrownnationalpark.org. We'll have a link in the notes, show notes. His awards include recognition from the Garden Writers Association, Audubon, the National Wildlife Federation, Allegheny College, Eco Foresters, the Garden Club of America, and the American Horticultural Association. Doug Tallamy, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, my friend. Well, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you, really. This is uh, exciting stuff because what I love, when I got into permaculture and thinking more deeply about land ethic as a philosopher, I really like the spirit that you find in permaculture, which is if you're concerned about the climate, go grab a shovel because we can feel so overwhelmed and so hopeless and we may think, well, I don't have much land. What am I supposed to do? And there are all sorts of ways where you actually could give back to the earth 
And that's uh, what I love about your work is it really helps to educate us and give us some vision about how to do that. But you begin with your work and sometimes talking about it with E.O. Wilson. Should we start there? Would you like to start with E.O. Wilson or wherever you'd like? Yeah, it was a great place to, to start. Of course, he's a very famous professor at Harvard, extremely long career, 60 years at least. And he died the day after Christmas two years ago. So it was a, a real loss to the world of conservation, world of entomology, world of myrmecology. He was he was the star of a number of fields. But one thing that was consistent throughout his very long career was his love of life on planet Earth. And he was always uh, mindful about saving it, not just because he loved it, but because he knew it was essential to our own survival. So in 2016, he wrote uh, Half Earth, Our Planets Fight for Life. And he had one simple message, and that was, if we've got to save nature, we've got to save functioning ecosystems on at least half of the planet, or we're going to lose it everywhere. And he spent most of the book talking about the science that supports that statement. Well, then he, then he stopped. He ended the book. He didn't tell us very much about how we were going to save nature on half of planet Earth, because that has not been our goal in the past. In the past, we've, we've had this unspoken idea that humans and nature cannot coexist, you know, humans are here, nature someplace else. And as long as it stays someplace else, we're, we're happy. Well, in so many places these days, there is no someplace else. Uh, and if we're really going to, to save nature and half of planet Earth, it means we're going to have to coexist. So that's that's that culture change you're talking about. We're going to have to learn to coexist. And, and my message is that's not hard. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's very rewarding. We uh, And it, it's it's really our only path forward. Um, so, uh, you know, if you if you summarize what my books are about, that's that's it. How are we going to live with nature? How are we going to landscape in a way that supports other life forms? Um, and that becomes a a uh, a goal for individual landowners. Most of the country is privately owned. Eighty five point six percent of the country east of the Mississippi is privately owned. Seventy eight percent of the whole country. So if we don't practice conservation on private property, we're going to fail. And it's very rewarding. Every bit of conservation we do outside of a park or preserves helps conservation inside a park or preserve. So so that makes the private landowner a real key player in the future of conservation in this country. Yeah. And it gives us something to do, which Americans really appreciate. Yes. We have something to do. Now, it's not just uh, Wilson. You, you didn't mention, but I'm sure you know that uh, no less a, a, a fellow revered scientific authority than James Lovelock also recommended. Now, his was more extreme. He said, we need to just retreat. And we we can't really do it. He had a little bit more that view of uh, human beings that you talk about, which we can move to next. But, but the idea that human beings really can't exist with the wild, and we don't have the intelligence to heal. We have to let the natural systems heal themselves. And the best thing would be for us to live in, in North America, I guess, would be maybe three megacities, he thought. We'd have, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe 100 million people in each city, and we'd just let it all heal. But you're saying, which is actually, I, I find, very resonant with an indigenous view. Because indigenous people currently now, that's a hotly debated term, okay, but roughly speaking, uh, we, we there's this view that maybe 5% of the world population would be considered indigenous, but 80% of biodiversity is under their care. So they are mm -hmm. demonstrating that we, we can live with, that we are part of nature, and the, that there could be a healing and reciprocity there. And you're trying to get us going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, Aldo Leopold once said that the 
greatest task in human history is to live in a piece of land without spoiling it. Well, the only groups that have been able to do that successfully have been indigenous groups, and they've done it for long periods. Our huge Western societies and our huge Asian societies are terrible at doing that. So we definitely need a, a little guidance from from those who know how. I would love to turn the entire planet over to the indigenous and say, hey, do it. Uh, trying, you know, I'm trying to propose something that will actually happen. Um, you know, at a utopian view, I would, I'd love to retreat. I'd love to have three cities in the U.S., but I just don't see that happening. So, so let's, let's, at least for the time being, let's engage everybody. Um, the reason I'm pushing this is that, um, I've seen, I've seen it happen so successfully on, uh, our, my own property. Uh, my wife and I live in Southeast PA and we're on a piece of land that was mowed for hay. You know, we put the plants back. Um, and, and we literally have thousands of species making a living here now. I've just counted the number of moss species. I've actually been doing it for six years that are now making a living on our property because we, we uh, put the plants back and I'm up to 1,202 species, uh, of, of moss. And they are the bread and butter of terrestrial ecosystems. Um, and because so many of them are types of bird food, we've recorded 61 species of birds that have bred on our property. Nature's really resilient. And if we give it a chance, it can come back. Um, so, so, you know, we still live here. We haven't retreated. And yet we are sharing this space with a lot of species. So I think, uh, you know, we see terrible headlines all the time. But I think uh, if everybody just put the plants back, a lot of those headlines would disappear. Yeah. And that's major with your property. What you uh, emphasize is that it was kind of like a biological uh, flat line, you know, there just was very, very, very little that was there. And over a, a period of time, you started to accrue species because you were, as you say, putting the plants back. And so we're looking at natives, ideally, and you detail this in the book. So if people want guidance, there's lots of resources that you've given in talks and in your book. Um, so it's a great place to start. But you talk about uh, ideally straight line, not cultivars of native species, and then trying to choose the keystone species, the species that are going to do the most to support life. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, the importance of the keystone species concept and how it plays out in this project for the homeowner or property worker, sure. wherever it might be? Yeah, actually, I think it's a it's the most important thing we've discovered in my lab uh, related to this. And that is that it's not just that native plants do these jobs better than non-natives. It's that particular native plants do them much better than other native plants. Remember what a keystone is. It's a stone in the middle of the Roman arch. And if you take that stone out, the arch collapses. Pennsylvania is called the Keystone State because it was it was fundamental in the creation of the United States. Well, I call certain plants Keystone plants because they're making most of the food. They're supporting the most caterpillars that drive the food webs. And there's only 14% of our native plants that are that are doing that. The others are contributing, but not nearly as as much. So a a food web without Keystone plants is going to be a failed food web. And um, we didn't know that, you know, we didn't know that four or five years ago. So how could we possibly, other than by chance, rebuild a successful ecosystem? Well, we do know it now. And, and, uh, it is one of the pieces of advice I give out all the time. Focus on those keystone plants. And people say, well, where do you find out what they are? You go to native plant finder on the National Wildlife Federation website and put in your zip code. And the ranked list of the best plants, both woody plants and herbaceous plants, will pop up for your county. 
So all the information is there. Uh, all you have to do is find it and get to work. Yeah. And we're talking about a, a couple of things happening at one time. You know, as a philosopher, I appreciate the idea that our, our life is what we practice. And so as we have a practice of giving back something, because it's we have created a, a culture uh, not only of where we practice fragmentation, but wh where that that fragmentation then means that we've taken a whole lot of our own energy out of the life world, whereas other beings, their energy is constantly going to furthering the conditions of life. Our energy, we could spend an entire week doing nothing that actually put energy back into the life systems, that ultimately all we did was extract. So we might have worked really hard, but we, ha we haven't, we've missed that relationship. And it's kind of interesting because there are a couple of philosophical things that came up as I was uh, thinking about your book. One is is the the Dalai Lama once said, he said, I, I, I've been inspired by the ideas of the French Revolution that were adopted as the motto of the French Republic, liberty, equality, and fraternity, brotherhood, kinship. And he said, well, you know, I adopt the same motto, and I'm a Buddhist, but, but my spiritual quest, he says, is to free myself of the fundamental ignorance that has led to the notion that there is a division between people and the natural world, which is at mm. the root of all our suffering, is why he said this, this fundamental distinction. And uh, then I was also thinking about uh, David Bohm. Are you familiar with his, in, in his work uh, uh, trying to think through, uh, you know, as a philosopher? Of course, I always say to scientists that you can't do science without being a philosopher because you have to have a philosophy of science. You have to have a view of how I do this, what do I choose as important, and so on and so on. So uh, f scientists can't escape philosophy, even though philosophers can sometimes escape science, although that's where I started out. But Bohm, he said, he wrote a book called Wholeness in the Implicate Order, and in that book he wrote, it is especially important to consider the question of wholeness and fragmentation today. And he wrote this in the 80s. For fragmentation is now very widespread, not only throughout society, but in each individual. And this is leading to a kind of general confusion of the mind, which creates an endless series of problems and interferes with our clarity of perception so seriously as to prevent us from being able to solve most of them. Now, he puts this fragmentation in academia. He says, look, we've got all these specializations. They don't talk to each other. We started to say, well, interdisciplinary studies, but that's just what meant more fragmentation. Then you've got it in the society where groups are divided against each other. Then you have it in the individual. And he says, well, you know, the notion that all these fragments are actually separate is evidently an illusion, and it's only going to create more problems. And he said that what it does is we, we start to have a fragmentary self-world view, which we then act upon. And so here's what he's suggesting scientifically, that the wholeness is real, and fragmentation that we see in the world, and I'm bringing this all up, as you know, because you talk about it, but the fragmentation we see in the world is the response of the whole to the fragmented human thinking and action and perception. And that if we started to respond with wholeness, then the response back would be wholeness. It, so it's, it's almost entering in this kind of relationship. But I'm bringing this up because one of the things that you say is, well, it's not just that we have all this land that is uh, in the urban-suburban matrix, as you put it, with all our airports, shopping malls, and roads. And you say the roadways are something like, if you added up all the paving of the roadways, five times the state of New Jersey in size, which is incredible. But then you say, well, it's not just that, but it's that this has been part of a process of fragmenting the world, 
would you like to go from any of this? <laughs> Talk well, a little sure. Bit. Uh, you know, I, you're talking about uh, the fragmentation of the ecosystems that support us. Yeah. David Quammen has a wonderful analogy between a Persian rug and an ecosystem. And there's a picture of a Persian rug and then a picture of rug fragments, 71 rug fragments. Persian rugs are Persian rug. Those are those fragments are fragments. They are not functional Persian rugs. And he says, that's what we've done to our to our ecosystems. And that's where our our natural systems are huddled now. They're disconnected. Um, and the real, the really only solution is to reconnect them. And that means to create viable habitat outside of those fragments. In other words, fill in the gaps. That's, that's where we are. That's where our cities are. It's where our farms are. Um, and that's where this coexisting with nature idea comes in, but that will connect those fragments with each other. The problem with fragmentation is that the populations within those fragments become very small. And small populations are highly vulnerable to local extinction because they all fluctuate. In good times, they go up. In bad times, they go down. If you're a tiny population and you're down cycle, you often hit zero and you blink out of your little habitat fragment. And we're seeing that. We're seeing the loss of species from these habitat fragments all over the world. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be a tiny fragment. There's a loss of species from Yellowstone and our biggest parks because they are tiny fragments compared to what they used to be. Mm. So reconnecting them by uh, creating viable habitat where we live, work, play, farm, where we do everything is the only solution that, that I see. We can't afford to be constantly losing species because the number of species in our ecosystems determines how stable that ecosystem is and how productive it is. We've now got 8 billion people on the planet, which means we need more ecosystem productivity than ever before. So every time a species disappear, people will say, well, you know, what good was this species? What good is that species? How does it help us? It helps us by by uh, being one of the species that runs the entire ecosystem mm -hmm. in ways that we can't even imagine. They're all interconnected. Right. So any type of species loss, even, even the reduction in numbers. So defaunation, where you're reducing the abundance of species, like the American chestnut. It's still here. You can go out and you find root sprouts. But it has been functionally eliminated from the eastern deciduous forest, uh, and it's been a terrible loss. Uh, and we have, you know, we've got serious oak diseases now. We've got oak be or beech leaf blight. We've got emerald ash borer. We've got hemlock woolly adelgid. We've got things knocking out our trees one after another. These are serious losses, even if you can still find an individual here and there. So, you know, we, we make extinction our our view of, of a problem, but that's like going to the doctor after you're dead. It's, it's the, the, the uh, reduction in large populations down to small populations. That's the real problem. And that's happening everywhere. Yeah. Because we, we talk about loss of habitat, put the habitat back, put it back in your yard. Right. Even your yard, we can do it. Yeah. And it's so there are two things going on, though. There's in part, there's the mental work of trying to begin to see that I'm making my own home when I do that. And that if I chose to live here, these are the beings who should be living with me. That it's just no different than, you know, if I decide I'm going to have a family, but I'm going to put the kids over there and the partner over there, and we're just all going to be in, in pieces, and we wouldn't do that. Uh, we have some sense of the wholeness there. And the idea is that if, if we if we see the species that we lost as a fragment and we're fragmented in our thinking, it's harder for us to see why it belongs to the whole. 
and how it relates to me. And so on the one hand, you're, there's the doing the work of bringing the fragments back together by connecting them right there in my own front yard and backyard. But then there's the cognitive and cultural shift of starting to say, yes, but that's because we're, we're all woven together. That, that, that I depend. So when you say ecosystem services, for instance, a lot of people are not realizing th that uh, what's happening right there in their yard is contributing to the water they drink or the heating bills they pay. It's not fully clicking necessarily. Yeah, for sure. It's our life support. Right. Right. You can, depending on how finely you divide it into, you know, 30, 40, 50 ecosystem services that we depend on every single day. You know, how about the production of oxygen? That's pretty important. As you say, clean water, carbon sequestration, enormously important today. Weather moderation. Um, you know, there's there's all these things that are happening uh, and always have happened in natural systems. And that is what makes life happen on planet Earth. Do we have the capability of destroying that? Absolutely. But we also have the capability of putting it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have this this thing that goes together as, as people are more and more frequently pointing out that in in the wisdom traditions and and and, and indig that includes indigenous traditions you have a lot more emphasis on responsibilities and we've just been so enamored with our rights and we don't <laughs> see that that you can't have the rights without taking on a kind of ecological and spiritual imperatives that are just part of reality that you you have certain responsibilities and obligations to take care of the place where you live that's the central problem that leopold talked about um but then all, you're trying to make it fun as well because we, nobody no in america we don't want to hear about more responsibility but so uh, sometimes we do of course some of our politicians want to emphasize personal responsibility so we have a personal responsibility to care for the land more than just on the basis of how pretty it looks or how convenient it is for me but that there's a deeper thing there but and you're saying well yes but it's also so rewarding it's not an onerous responsibility but you get a lot of wonder you do. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of wonderful research showing the medical benefits of associating with the natural world, even for a few minutes. Fifteen minutes uh, standing next to a tree will lower your blood pressure. It reduces your cortisol, your stress hormone. Those are the main things. When you reduce stress, you do everything better. Uh, and and I mean everything from you know your marriage is healthier, you learn better, you're help you're you're physically healthier, you're more productive at work, you're just a happier person, you're a nicer guy, all because you get lower stress levels, and it's it's exposure to the natural world that is a key in lowering those stress levels. Uh, so um, people worry about uh, if i have trees in my neighborhood it's going it's going to elevate crime because the bad man can hide behind the tree uh the data don't support that the more trees in a neighborhood the lower crime is because the bad man doesn't want to be a bad man anymore <laughs> uh, so yeah these yeah. are these are um, some of the the um data behind trying to get trees back into our our urban situations along with real physical benefits of lowering heat island effect and so on but yeah, there are a lot of benefits. Now, everybody, I mean, I grew up in a family of three. I was born loving nature. My brother and sister weren't. We were all exposed to the same things. Uh, but, but uh, you know, finding a salamander just didn't make them real happy. But it did make me real happy. So it's not that they're bad people, but it, but it doesn't, it's not as fun for everybody as 
equally. Let's put it that way. And I recognize that. But that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of taking care of the world that takes care of you. You know, we live in a house. We've got to wash our dishes. We've got to make our bed. We've got to keep it a livable space, whether we like it or not. It's just a responsibility of, of living in that space. That's all I'm saying. We have this basic responsibility. And if we, if we shirk that responsibility, there are serious consequences. Yes. And we're seeing those. We're seeing those consequences of misunderstanding, yeah. a kind of uh, cultural ignorance. It's interesting, though, that you, uh, you point out there's this question of, well, E.O. Wilson talked about biophilia. Uh, sometimes now people are talking about uh, topophilia, that the place is really much more so because there would be a local ecology. So it's not just love of any life, but you're really attuned to what's there. Uh, and so biophilia means that we have a, something in us is inherently attuned to opening up a reverence for nature and a love of nature. And, but the question is what it's competing with, because there have been, I, I remember reading one study, I used to talk to my students about a lot, that uh, children were, they got children together and they, they got some fancy toys, whatever was kind of in, and they put those in the room. And then they, they got some living things, spiders, grasshoppers, even if it were a spider, Children spent more time with the living thing than they did with the fancy toy, asked more questions about it, spoke more about it. And then afterwards, when they gave the parents a survey about the trip home, the kids talked more about it than uh, the children who focused on the toys. Now, some kids might have been drawn to the toy. Why is that? Well, that's a cultural thing, too. And so it could be that your siblings are just, you know, they got a little more hooked because of the things that are out there to pull us away from the natural world. Because if we're happy under the tree, we don't want to go buy the Corvette. And that's a problem. You <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm happy under the tree. No, you want a Rolex. You, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I had not heard about that study. That's interesting. I can share it with you, yeah. And I also was just thinking about how you do talk in the book, how you did this restoration in, in Pennsylvania with your wife. And so this is also something that can bring us together as families that we can, because we can teach our children, we can find ways to open up that love of nature. And then when we are with people we care about doing that kind of thing, there's a communitas, there's, there's a kind of deeper sense of connection that we get uh, we're, we don't have to fight. We're here to help nature, you know. We're... Well, it's a, it's a common goal. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm at the age where all my friends are retiring. And, you know, I look around. They're retiring from the goals they had in, in their careers. And they don't know what to do. They're without goals. And putting the world back together again is a goal that, that will uh, – it will – it will be there when we're all gone. So um, it's something that can occupy you every single day. And I, I don't know. I just think they'll be happier people. They'll they'll wake up with something to do that day. Yeah. It's got to make us happy. Yeah, there's a deep sense of meaning and purpose of putting the world back together. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, there's that idea of healing, healing the rift in the world. And many traditions have that, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And we do need that meaningfulness, that sense of purpose. It's really marvelous. Now, so in this activities, part of them, what is happening is if, if I'm in my urban-suburban matrix and uh, I decide, well, I'm going to try to give away some of my yard, maybe all of it, but you say, well, even if we did half, even if we did half, it would be larger than most of the national parks you could name put together, which is extraordinary. Just half the lawns, because it's 44 million acres of lawn yep. that we have. That's, that's an area bigger than New England. Yeah, 
And so even if we just said half, of course, I would say do the whole thing. Make it a little wonderland in there, and then you don't have to run a lawnmower, and that would reduce pollution too. Those small engines are inefficient. Well, I mean, people have electric ones now. But anyway, uh, but the idea is that we'd be stitching it together because if my lawn is, is near yours, there could be a connection so that the fragment becomes larger and larger as as we connect. Is that part of the idea? Absolutely. I mean, I, I do get emails all the time. Will it make a difference if I take my quarter acre and do this? And the answer is, if you're the only one on the planet that does it, no, it won't make a difference. But you're not the only one doing it. Um, I've been very pleased. I've been surprised. I mean, I have been talking about this for 20 years now. And um, when I wrote Bringing Nature Home, I really didn't think anybody would, would read it. I certainly didn't think that it would... Uh, really begin to heal the culture as as fast as it has. People are ready for this. Mm-hmm. What I'm really saying is um, I'm empowering them. You can make a difference. People say oh, the world's falling apart. What can one person do? Well, I got 15 things one person can do, and you can change that world right on your property. See the changes, which motivates you to do it more and more. And the more people that do that, the more connectivity you get. The larger that fragment becomes, Again, the more conservation we do outside of those parks and preserves helps conservation inside. So many of our animals move around. Hmm. You know, our migrating birds, they're going from South America to Canada. They stop at your place and they depend on it. That's what gets them there, coming and going. And many of them stop and breed there. Uh, And that's just an obvious example. But um, you're not alone when you work on your – you're not alone in a city if you put an aster in a flower pot. That will help some pollinator somewhere. It'll help a migrating monarch. Yeah. Uh, and that's important because 82% of us live in cities now. So um, they have to be able to participate in this as well. Yeah. And well, it's significant because it, it actually, even if you were the only person, it matters to those beings who come to your place, your oasis. I mean, to create a sanctuary, to give a meal to a hummingbird matters to that hummingbird, and they are going to be grateful. And so there is this kind of immediate sense of care, that it awakens a deep sense of care and reverence for life, um, even if you were alone. But as you point out, you're not, and that's part of the difficulty in systems change, is that the fragmentation gets us thinking that we're each alone, and even that I'm against you. And yet, Mm. you and I both need clean water. There's no yeah. reason why we couldn't connect and say, well, we both need clean water. We both need to say that's enough polluting the river, and, and, and let's see if we can get rid of some of these invasives and so on. Yeah. These basic needs do put us in the same tribe. We're on the same team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we can't argue about that. We all need healthy ecosystems. That's right. And there's a way, too, where there's a, a deeper, you could say, level of ignorance or in, in spiritual or religious terms, we could even say a deeper level of sin, where we're so worried about uh, male privilege and white privilege and all, the, all these fragments, but we're all taking advantage of human privilege. We're all riding on all our rights with no responsibility. And if we could all say, you know what, well, I'm guilty of this one too. We're all, we're all in this ignorance. And if we could start mm-hmm. to heal that, maybe the other ones too would also start to heal because you know, we can all get together on that basis. There's a kind of common ground a common wisdom instead of Thomas Paine's common sense. This revolution calls for a kind of common wisdom and a common sense of care and compassion for the world. And also a common sense of beauty to be able to appreciate the natural world, which we often, I remember when I was, I, I was uh, did some teaching at UCSC 
uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, which is renowned as a beautiful campus. I mean, it's just well, uh, it's in the redwoods. It's just, it's a glorious place if you've ever visited. And uh, mm-hmm. students would, <laughs> I would have them do a mindful walk during class. So I'd say, okay, we're going to take 15 minutes and you're just going to go out there and walk just very mindfully, see everything, be very present. And students would come in and they might be frosh students, first year students. And they would say, you know, part of the reason I came here is because this is a beautiful campus. And here I am halfway into my first year. And I realize how I'm already ignoring it. I'm already not not appreciating and 15 minutes reminded me, my God, that's why I came here. What, what am I doing? And so that disconnection there, that fragmentation is constantly being reinforced. And you're trying to invite us into finding more and more ways where we could return to wholeness. Yeah, it's a wonderful goal. And uh, the good news is I think we're making progress in, in that sense. Um, much faster than I thought we would. So. Yeah, yeah, and you give an example uh, of, of uh, a woman who had uh, what was it—a sixth of an acre or point six acres? Which which one tenth of an acre? Well, in Chicago, in Chicago, there's that, but then there was the the suburbanite who had a sixth of an acre, and she managed to get more more bird species than you you did. Point oh, six acres, yeah, point right. six. Yeah, that's, that's right. Point six. Missouri, yeah, the yeah. yeah. So even one tenth of an acre, though, and and that was near an airport in in near in Chicago. Yeah, right next to O'Hare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and she yeah. was able to get a, a big increase in bird species and and uh, insect species. And we, you're looking at this in terms of uh, just to to well, maybe I'll circle back to that. But I, I wanted to ask something that I don't I don't know if if I came across. So there's a, we have the sense of of if my lawn's next to yours, it'll connect the. Uh, certainly the birds and the squirrels can get from place to place rather easily. But there are some beings who might have a hard time. Do you do you think neighbors then need to talk about uh, rethinking Robert Frost's idea that good fences make good neighbors and think about how our fences could have corridors in them too? Have people asked you about that? or what? How do we deal with the four-legged ones who are going to start coming in? And some of them maybe we'll be nervous about and we'll have to relearn how to live with them again. Yeah. That is that is the supreme challenge of of living with your neighbor. We often have very different values. If I go to my neighbor and say, you know, I want you to live the way I, I live because that's the right way and you're doing it wrong. That <laughs> that's a hard sell. So people are reluctant to do that. We often are are willing to uh, absorb whatever our our neighbor throws at us. Uh, if you're lucky enough to to uh, live next to somebody who has the same values, then yeah, break down those barriers. That the box turtle wants to move back and forth, wants to move from the woods to to the sunny place to lay its eggs. Uh, the the toads migrate from their pond to every other place every year. Um, and yes, if there's a fence there, if you're mowing your lawn at dusk when they're making these these movements, it becomes really difficult. So there's simple things we can do to help animals coexist with us and move back and forth it's with insects it's actually much easier they're pretty good at getting around and we don't even know it so i was thinking in terms also so for one thing it occurred to me that you know people could have um this could be a way to open up dialogue with people. It can be so scary sometimes to talk to people but we can find that we have common ground and sometimes even kind of like lo- local salon type discussion, you know, community discussion, even if you were passing around flyers that we're going to start talking about these things. It, it, we're so, as Americans, it's it's as if a big definition of freedom for us is the freedom to be left alone. 
and but there is no alone in nature you know and we are social beings and we see that other beings uh, you know darwin talked about this how how social beings depend on others for their success and it gives them great advantages the lone wolf is a rarity uh, they right. are there are social beings so are we we get a lot of intelligence so there is an ecology of mind that it might be nice to expand as we try to heal the e- fragmented ecologies out there that they go together um and lots of cognitive scientists have talked about this too, right? That you need diversity in your ecology of mind. If thinking is not a, an activity that it, it occurs, strictly speaking, inside of human skulls, it doesn't. It's a relational activity, the same as any other ecological activity, that we are ecologies. Okay, so I would have encouraged people to see if you, is this a way that you could reach out to your neighbors who might like nature even a little, or even things where you could be offering to help them. Like you point out, for instance, a person might have a beautiful oak tree, might be a very majestic, rather mature oak tree, but if the ground isn't, uh, if it's very compacted, tight lawn underneath, then it's losing a lot of what it can give because it really needs to have some disturbed ground and some plants underneath it in order, maybe you could outline a little bit of that, just as one example of how we can't just, oh, we'll just plant it and we're done, <laughs> but we have to think a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I like your example of the oak tree because oaks support more caterpillar diversity than any other plant genus in the country. They support over 950 species of caterpillars. And those caterpillars develop on the tree, but 94% of them drop from the tree when they finish growing and they try to wiggle their way underneath the soil and pupate underground, or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that's under the tree. So when we landscape in a way where there is no leaf litter under the tree and we mow and compact our soil so that it's rock hard, then the caterpillars can't get underground. So you're losing much of the value of that oak tree. Uh, and again, just to remind people, why do we want all these caterpillars? Well, if you want one chickadee breeding in your yard, a tiny little bird, third of an ounce, it takes 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to make one nest of chickadees just to get Whoa. them to leave, leave the nest. And after they leave the nest, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars another 21 days. Where are they getting those caterpillars? From your oak tree. Two oak trees is even better. Right. But we want those caterpillars to be able to make moths to to uh, complete their life cycle and then lay eggs again the following year. Yeah. These are the, you know, the they're just little tricks of, of conservation, of restoration that we're learning that we hadn't thought about before. None of them are difficult. They're just new pieces of information. Oh, yeah, what's under your tree matters. Well, everybody says, how can I reduce the lawn? That's the easiest way. Put yeah. a tree in your yard, put a bed under that tree. All of a sudden, you've got less lawn. Yeah. Well, so there you go, Dad. You have me raking leaves every fall. Now, so what do people do if they've got a big, big oak and the leaves are falling? What They should just leave it? No, they should. Well, you know, they, so if we reduce the area of lawn, uh, let's say we do what I say. We're going to cut, cut that area in lawn. You don't want the leaves staying on the grass all winter long. That doesn't help the lawn. So we rake them into those flower beds that we have created. That's where they should spend the winter. Those leaves are really valuable. They're returning the nutrients that that tree used that year. They're, they're making a blanket that protects the soil community. And that soil community includes the mycorrhizal fungi that transfer nutrients to the tree. Uh, it becomes a closed nutrient cycle when you leave the leaves there. When you rake them away, you've broken that cycle. And when you do that for decades, your tree doesn't live very long. Right. Yeah. Um, so they're not just, uh, we call them leaf litter. As if it's garbage, you know. Right. It's, 
a woman in in uh, St. Louis, Jean Ponzi, says we should call it leaf largesse, and it's much more, much closer to the truth. That is true. Yeah, it is. And but of course, if you yes, if you didn't have any, if you decided, well, no lawn, I'd rather not rake any leaves. Then you don't have to mow any grass, and you don't have to rake any leaves. If you just let it all, if you have a system that will take care of it for you, and it will then further the conditions of life. But at the very least, if you are sharing a little, but you could always have in your flower bed a little place for you to sit. Um, and you wouldn't have to, you just brush the leaves off of that part of it and you'd be fine. So that would be a nice way to go. And you also point out, which I think is so um, important for people to realize, is that there are growing incentives and we could vote for more. My goodness, we could say that corporations need to start paying, like the fossil fuel companies and so on, because these calculations have been done. And, you know, the amount that they should be paying for their externalities, what we call externalities, the, the degradation that's a consequence that isn't part of their 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 model, right? We pay the, the price. Well, if we started to raise the taxes on them, then we could get the money in order to heal our land. And you point out that there are a lot of incentives already out there. Maybe you could mention some that you can remember give people yeah. some ideas. Minnesota Soda has a, a cost-sharing program that pays homeowners to reduce or eliminate their lawn and replace it with, with appropriate Minnesota prairie plants. There is a an island off of Florida that is, is paying homeowners to allow burrowing owls, listed species, to burrow in the front yard. And I think that's the way the Endangered Species Act should have been written, with carrots rather than sticks. Hmm. So if you have an endangered species on your property, we're going to pay you to take care of it, to be a good steward of that species, rather than fine you if you use your your property. Anybody would want an endangered species. Um, Utilities are giving people $100 coupons to plant water-efficient native plants instead of the thirsty non-natives. And, of course, the big lawn reduction programs in California – you get $3 per square foot rebate for every square foot of lawn you replace with Xeric plantings. There are, there are uh, towns like uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, or St. Louis, Missouri, have a bounty on uh, invasive plants like calorie pear. You take out a calorie pear, you get a free tree replacement. But, you know, we could make we could make just tax cuts for everybody that would be universal. It would change the culture overnight. People respond to incentives so much better than they respond to uh, to those sticks that we talked about. So Right. And, and the in- you're right, there's more and more of them uh happening. So yeah, and the Endangered Species Act, as you point out, part of the difficulty was is that it was fragmented because we're looking at a species and we don't understand that there are larger things that we have to yeah. consider. No species is an island. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or as you quoted, uh, islands are where species go to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually not my quote. I forget who's, who's it is. I rem- uh, yeah, I know. I said you quoted. I, I can't David remember. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I also, um, one of the things that came to mind, and I, I could read this passage to you from Thoreau. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic years ago, and uh, it's a long piece. I don't know if they publish things this long, but it's a beautiful thing. It reminded me a lot of, of uh, some of what you're saying. He wrote, I wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness as contrasted with freedom and culture merely civil, and I think I would put that in quotes, he didn't, to regard human beings as inhabitants or as part and parcel of nature rather than as members of a society. I wish to make an extreme statement. If if so, I may make an emphatic one, for there are enough champions of civilization already. The minister, the school committee, and every one of you will take care of that. In wilderness is the preservation of the world. 
I believe in the forest and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows. We require an infusion of hemlock spruce or arbor vitae in our tea. There, and so that, uh, just a little bit more. This is where it's going to get, you're going to see already, yeah, it's interesting, but it's going to get very relevant to what you're saying. Life consists with wildness. That is, it's composed of it. The most alive is the wildest. Hope and the future for me are not in lawns and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the impervious and quaking swamps. I derive more of my subsistence from the swamps which surround my native town than from the cultivated gardens in the village. There are no richer parterres to my eyes, those are gardens, garden divisions to, to my eyes, than the dense beds of dwarf Andromeda, Cassandra Caliculata, which cover these tender places on the earth's surface. Botany cannot go further than tell me the names of the shrubs which go there, all standing in the quaking sphagnum. I often think that I should like to have my house front on this mass of dull red bushes, omitting other flower pots and borders, transplanted spruce and trim box, and even graveled walks, to have this fertile spot under my windows. Not a few imported barrowfuls of soil only to cover the sand which was thrown out in digging the cellar. Why not put my house, my parlor, behind this plot instead of behind that meager assemblage of curiosities, that poor apology for nature and art which I call my front yard? The most tasteful <laughs> front yard fence was never an agreeable object of study to me. The most elaborate ornaments, acorn tops or what not, soon wearied and disgusted me. Bring your sills up to the very edge of the swamp, then, though it may not be the best place for a dry cellar, so that there be no access on that side to citizens. You may think me perverse, but if it were proposed to me to dwell in the neighborhood of the most beautiful garden that ever human art contrived, or else a dismal swamp, I should certainly decide for the swamp. <laughs> now he goes on from there. 100, 150 years before his time. <laughs> 150 years. But what is also so amazing about that, and so I love that he's, and you're basically inviting, you say, all right, Thoreau, I would love it if people would just, they can replant that wilderness. They can have some density, at least on one windowsill. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. But there could be some real density where it felt like, okay, this is alive and there's a wildness that's come back which Gary Snyder says that wildness is the processes of nature as opposed to the agendas of human beings. That's kind of how he thinks about it. Um, and you're inviting us to kind of allow some of that to come back, that we could plant it back. But it is interesting that he had that view, the transcendentalists had that view. You had all these people arrive on this continent, and they could they had a more existential connection to the fact that, wait, we drink this water, wait, we, we live on what's in the forest. We still, we're still in the place we're at. Now, I don't want to be hopeless, but I just think it's how funny is this that these ideas are kind of not new and people have been concerned about them. Uh, there's, there is something deep. So on the, on the one hand, I guess it brings back to where we started, where I, I thought, as a philosopher, I really appreciate a practice of life. And if the practice of life starts to get people in motion of saying, I have to take care of the land in some way, and look, Doug Tallamy has given me a roadmap and I have all these other resources... My goodness, there is still this like kind of subtle spiritual problem that I don't know that will. I don't know what you think of that because there is like we can't continue everything that we call development, and then we'll do this wilderness planting, and then it'll all be all okay, right? Because somehow or other, that the development is faster. <laughs> 
than our planting, yeah. isn't it? There's several thoughts there. Sure, we're on a finite planet. Yeah. We're on a finite planet with finite resources, which means our use of those resources has to be finite. Yeah. Yet we've got a we've got an economic system which is based on perpetual growth. Yeah. Does not work. <laughs> uh, and, and everybody knows that it does not work. Short-term gain until we all collapse. Um, yeah, I, not, I don't support that. We're what we're doing is is trying to reconstruct what the indigenous folks knew <laughs> many centuries ago. We've got to live within the limits of the resources. We are totally connected to those resources. That's what keeps us alive in this place. And if we exceed those resources, and some of them did, there's big trouble. That's the only solution. That's It's coexisting with the, the natural resources that support us. It is not rocket science. And it's not new. <laughs> we think it's new because we haven't been thinking seriously about it for 100 years. But um, it's old. Yeah. It's old. We, we need, you know, it boils down to worshiping nature. We can deify nature the way the, the ancients did. Uh, and maybe that will help us. We seem to need to deify something, so let's deify the natural world that supports us. Yeah, why not? Yes, you know it's a, it's a vengeful God. If we <laughs> if we don't do what it says, it's going to come back and bite us. Um, yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of you can make a lot, draw a lot of analogies between, you know, the former religions of today and the ancient religions of of uh, worshiping nature. Yeah. Well, I often say that if, if, even if you were in the monotheistic traditions, if, if God, God, if the capital G made you a, a house and you lived in it, how do you think God would feel if he came back 50 years later and saw that you had peed on all the rugs, that you had wiped your bottom with the curtains that he made, you burned all the cabinetry that he fashioned, and, you know, the place was just a general wreck. I mean, is it sacred if God made it or not? And, and it certainly seems quite simple to say, well, my goodness, if it was made, and we were made for it. It's not that it's just a stage. We kind of have that story in our mind, well, God made the world and then stuck us in it. But no, it would have to be that God made the world perfectly suited to us. Those plants are producing our oxygen, as you say, and they're cleaning the air too, right? They're not just, they're, they're helping to clean up our mess. And the same with all these other beings who, who are here to help us. They are just totally interwoven with the way we live and what we need. Yeah, I don't. I have never subscribed to the idea that God created all of the millions of forms of biodiversity on this planet so that we could destroy them. <laughs> I just don't. I don't buy that. <laughs> it doesn't fit. Yes, yeah, so it meant for them to go extinct. You know, I hear it's God's will. Who says it's God's will? You know, right. I mean, you say it's God's will. I don't. Yeah. Well, what do you think of the, you know, together with this uh, fragmentation that we have, uh, I mean, you're a scientist and you're trying to talk about, look, these are scientific verities. But then you have some people who are using science and technology to essentially escape the planet. You know, so Elon Musk tells us we don't have to worry about human overpopulation. We can just start building desalination plants. He doesn't seem to, I don't know what he thinks. But as a scientist, when you look at some of these gestures, and uh, what, what, how do you feel about that? I mean, how do you even, how do you make sense even of scientists who um, are climate deniers. I mean, it's such a tiny amount, but this whole thing, I don't know, you can touch on any of that. Did you, how, how does it feel as a scientist? What do you think about that thinking? A couple of weeks ago, my grandparents, my grandparents, my grandchildren. <laughs> that would be astonishing, sat, Doug. <laughs> sat me down and made me watch The Martian. Have you watched The Martian? The Martian. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 
Well, everybody who wants to go to Mars and colonize it should watch the, the Martian. Right. It, the carrying capacity of Mars is zero. It will always be zero. Uh, and you can go live up there. Elon can lead the way. Uh, we have a livable planet now. Yes. To say, well, we're going, you know, we'll just go find another habitable planet. No, we won't. It's ridiculous. Well, it's a waste of resources. I, you know, I'm not opposed to, to you know, exploring space. Uh, but if it's because we're going to go colonize it, um, that that's it's fantasy. Yeah, it's it's fantasy. We can't figure out how to live on a planet that has everything we need. How are we going to live on a planet that has nothing that we need? It is. How are we going to get it beyond? It's just not real. It's fun to talk about. Makes nice movies, but um, no. Yeah, and it's it's funny that if you don't have your own house in order. Just so to speak, like in terms of rights and responsibilities, we think we have the right to do whatever we want. No, you first have to meet the responsibility that you've taken care of everything here. You, you know, like if you can't do that, if, 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 and there's all this degradation that happens because it's a massive intervention into the natural world. And we saw this with the most recent explosion of the rocket, which, you know, defenders of Musk said, oh, no, everybody thinks he, you know, he, he made a mistake, but he did it on purpose, which I think makes it worse. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because that, that created a lot of problems. The, 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 there's sensitive habitat there, which was strewn with litter, and, and now these beings have to listen to rockets going off and exploding and, and, and spreading debris. So you have this real lack of responsibility at, at an extraordinary scale, which shouldn't be possible for one individual to, to be kind of captaining. I, I, you know, this brings me to the idea of property rights. We have the right to do whatever we want on our, on our property. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me not too long ago that our properties are not like Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on our properties does not stay on our properties. And that that is why property rights don't make any sense. You do not have the right to pollute my water. You do not have the right to pollute my air. You do not have the right to destroy all the pollinators that that uh, that my systems need. You don't have a right to create a landscape that does not support a food web. Nobody's thinking like that. We think, well, I want a big, big lawn. Of course, lawn does none of those things. It, it's, you know, it's an ecological dead zone. Um, and it's not that the people that have big lawns are evil. They just haven't thought about the consequences of what they do on their property impacts the entire ecosystem around them. And my experience is when they hear about those consequences, they're appalled and they get serious about changing it. Hmm. So it's one of the, one of the things that gives me a, a lot of hope that, that, um, it was. It's really we've been driven by ignorance by this idea that humans and nature can't coexist for centuries. Uh, but when we when we expose the fact that yes, we can live together, we must live together. People they're getting into it. They're they you know they're excited about making that change. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things that you point out essentially is that you talk about these kind of three basic missteps, and one is is the one that Thoreau is getting at there when he said we are constituted with wildness. In other words, nature and human beings are not theoretically even really separable, unless your theory is very limited. Um, so in principle, we have to see that they're not. And then the other two are that... Uh, biodiversity and human beings are separable, which is it's related. I mean, those are two very interrelated. And then finally, the conservation is for conservationists. And, <laughs> and that right. somehow or other, we have to see this as part of our responsiveness to life, our responsibility to life. 
I mean, to, yeah. to, this is part of really what you're saying is we kind of have to be able to shift into seeing ourselves as co that we are responsible for the conservation of the world, for its health, for its vitality, for its sanity, really. Because as we're talking about restoring our sanity, you're talking about because these kind of ignorance where you, uh, you just, just create an ecological dead zone. That's a kind of crazy thing to do. Well, let's all create ecological dead zones. If we said that out loud, we would say, why, why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. So kind of a rec recovering of sanity. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. We, you know, we, we, we need healthy ecosystems, so we all have the responsibility of, of sustaining them, I think. Right now, we've got the crazy system where we've, we've assigned that responsibility to the ecologists and conservation biologists and everybody else has a green light to destroy the planet makes no sense at all um i'm not sure how we how we got there it's that it's that uh you know divisions that you're talking about um so yes everybody in the planet is the future of conservation my goal is to tell them that <laughs> because most people don't have a clue about that they don't they don't know that yeah so this seems to be too. Have you had many uh, schools and even I would think workplaces because there's a lot of corporations who have massive lawns and there are a lot of schools who are always looking for ways to to deepen learning. And here you could have an, an engagement learning by doing. And one of the things we lack, of course, is eco literacy. You know, this idea that every year I think it was James Orr who wrote that every year when when uh, uh, you know millions of, of university students are tossing up their caps in the air and enjoy the earth is heaving a great sigh of despair because those people lacking eco-literacy are going to go out into the world and, and find ways to degrade it. And um, have you had any, any I don't know, have you heard of, of schools trying to to think through this and, and start to grow and plant or corporate groups? Because I'm just thinking that people on some of these corporate campuses could get together and, you know, hey, let's have yeah. lunch out here. Let's increase our biodiversity of mind by being outside together and well, more and more of these big corporations do have sustainability groups, and they're having uh, lunchtime seminars. I gave one to Johnson and Johnson yesterday. Um, that's starting to happen. When I think of of the way education was when I was in school, I mean, we didn't. The word ecology didn't even come up. I mean, this was this was pre Earth Day. There was nothing like this. Uh, so. It is better than now than it was then, and kids are exposed to a whole lot more than than we were as as children. Um, but uh, this is why we we made a young readers version of Nature's Best Hope to get it into the schools so that we can expose kids to these ideas written at their their grade level. Yeah, it just came out in, in early April, and you know I. I hope it works, or at least be one thing. People, I get emails all the time. Will you come to my school and talk? There are tens of thousands of schools out there, and I, I can't even finish my email these days. So yeah. me going around to every school is not the solution, but getting the message out in general will help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find this a challenge too because I teach eco literacy, and right now I, I I focus on creatives because they're very open minded, and they're very interested in 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 becoming you know the healing that kind of fragmentation and sanity and not perpetuating the problem. But it you know it's uh, finding more and more corporate clients who want to take 
eco-literacy seriously is not always easy. And to take it seriously is very threatening to the kind of corporate structures we have, as we've talked about, because they are depending on externalizing all the ecological ignorance. And that responsibility, I mean, Patagonia is such a weird example. And now, you know, the way he's changed the corporation and, and um, and shifted it into, you know, functioning like something that will maybe, as far as a corporation can, further the conditions of life rather than merely degrade them. It's a kind of interesting case study. Yeah, it is. It is. We have to be wary of, of, of greenwashing. I haven't yeah. decided what to do about that. You know, somebody says, here's a whole bunch of money and you can use it the way you want. And I know how I would use it. Yeah. But doing it for greenwashing, well... I can do good things with that money and you know make a lot of lot of positives, but um, is it going to change their their corporate structure now? So yeah, so there is a conflict in logic there too. Yeah, and so yeah. again, this is part of the question: is whether or not these engaging in just that a different set of habits could begin to get our sh- our thinking to shift. I mean, it seems that education will continue to be super important. Because it, it somehow won't be enough. I don't know that we'll solve this, the, what we could call the philosophical or spiritual problems, not in an airy-fairy way. But, you know, what the Dalai Lama is talking about, hey, you think I'm some religious guru. I'm saying that the problem is the separation of humans and environment. So, so many scientists would say, okay, I like this guy. <laughs> so, there, but there is that, how do we overcome it? And it seems like we'll have to support it in lots of ways. But that includes turning to our philosophical and spiritual traditions that give us a different way to envision the world. And that's so important, the kind of basic worldview we have, to begin to see the interwovenness so we don't break it down and fragment it all the time, the wholeness, and begin to understand that we have to be rooted in ethics, too. One place that you might be interested in mentioning to people uh, is, is as a framework of values around this, is the Earth Charter. Have Have you heard of the Earth Charter? No. It's an incredible civil society document. And the participants in shaping the document included science, uh, scientists trained in the Western models, but also religious leaders uh, like the Dalai Lama and many others. And lots of indigenous leaders also participated. And it took years to shape this document as a statement of values that uh, many, many schools, uh, that high schools, universities, grade schools have adopted as a way to begin to talk about eco-literacy. I mean, together with your kind of hand book of here's the details it's a really powerful way to think about the values and the kind of thinking that would undergird that i recommend it's a short document and the earth charter i, I teach a course online with uh with uh, kathy fitzgerald uh, my, my co-teacher we teach a course on the earth charter but you can also take a course through earth charter international now it was done by the united nations but again as a civil society document not as law but people are starting to use it as a way to think about how we connect our values as human beings to this activity of, of caring for the world that we depend on. Very powerful, easy to read. I recommend it to everybody. I'll put some links in the show notes if I remember. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'll take a look. Yeah, it's really useful. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything that you, I don't know. Uh, I, I saw some of the questions you get asked commonly. They're in the book. That's that's really helpful. Is there anything maybe you don't get to say often enough or that you just think is really important that you would like to leave us with? I typically end these discussions with revisiting your personal responsibility to good earth stewardship, although you and I have hit it pretty hard this time. So <laughs> usually it's, it's, it's ignored. Um, uh, and the reason I keep coming back to it is that most people don't know they have that responsibility. They, you know, they're, they're, there's so many layers. They think nature's happy over there. It's not here. I'm not a conservation biologist. What do I know? There's nothing I can do. Um, so, so we've got to get past that and realize there is something you can do this fall, find an acorn and plant it. It's free. 
It will take you 10 minutes and it will make a huge difference. When I go out to the 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 oaks that I planted on my property here from acorns, they're 60 feet tall now. And look at the life associated with those trees. That really empowers me. You know, I brought this light, that life to this space because I planted that acorn and there was no acorn there before that. Now, I'm patting myself on the back a lot because um, and I shouldn't be, <laughs> but it's easy to to do a whole lot of restoration. Uh, and I encourage people to think about that. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing. Again, just to know, to know that you act, you can do something because we're, we're so encouraged into hopelessness and we have so much stress, strain and anxiety in our lives. And this is a way where we can heal self and world at the same time. Because so often in, in our world, we're encouraged to try to heal ourselves and n- never does the self-help guru tell us or the therapist tell us, well, you know, this really needs to go together with healing the world and it will be more powerful for you and for the world. And it's also, I think, just to, to, to bring it back to values, because I think they're so important, one of the things that's important about whether one reflects through the, the Earth Charter or just in general, I, I usually ask people, if you think of your very highest values, like what you really think life is about, which of those connect to degrading the world? And in, and in what ways can you see those values being really made real in your activity of caring for the world? And most people, when they think about what's important to them, whether it's family, love, wisdom, community, whatever sorts of things, and, and most people have those sorts of self-transcending, intrinsically valuable values, those things tend to go together with, the, with what we're talking about. How do we really care for life and cultivate the whole of life onward for the future? And caring for life is caring for yourself. So it all all comes together very neatly. It, it really does. It's self-care. We love self-care. And so self-care can be, yeah. if I plant a tree, that's a heck of an act of self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, Doug Tallamy, thank you so much for joining us on Dangerous Wisdom. It was really great to have you here. Uh, I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, stories about your own forays into restoration ecology or taking care of the land, becoming a conservationist of your own, whatever it might be, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation or interview. In the meantime, this is Dr. Nikos reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.